messages for the period of Lent are all about the songs Jesus sang. We're looking at the Psalms of David, and the reason why we're looking at them is as Jesus is approaching Jerusalem, he's on his final 40-day walk to Jerusalem toward death and resurrection. We join Jesus on this journey, and we, we participate in what Jesus has done and is doing and is going to do in us. Everything God does is in light of and as a reflection of the cross and resurrection. And so because of this, we take time as a church, not just our church, but churches around the world, to approach Jerusalem with Jesus, realizing that his death and resurrection is both the most significant moment in his ministry, but it's not just an event that happened in history. It's actually an event that we currently participate in. It's currently giving life to the world. And on his way, Jesus was praying and he was worshiping and he was teaching and he was healing the sick. But we just thought it would be really powerful to talk about worship and to talk about the kind of worship that would inform Jesus' ministry and would inform Jesus' thinking. Because these were the psalms that Jesus would have sang. These were the psalms that Jesus knew and likely had memorized. And they not only prophesy of Jesus' ministry, but they kind of inform how Jesus teaches about the kingdom of God. What's really interesting about it is that they don't, they don't always reinforce Jesus' kingdom message in the way we would expect. And today is an example of that. So we're going to read from Psalm 63, but if you could also, uh, if you want to skip ahead, if you're a note taker, we're also going to read from John chapter 6, starting at verse 25. My dad opened the service with Psalm 63. Let me read to you the beginning of the passage here. It says, O God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. So I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise you. Thus I will bless you while I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. Pretty much all the psalms selected for Lent are like David's greatest hits. These are big psalms. We've already read Psalm 27. We've read, I believe Psalm 23 is either behind us or before us. Psalm 91 will be there. We've read that actually uh, two weeks ago. And uh, Psalm 63 is no exception. Psalm 63 is a psalm David reads in his second season in the wilderness. David spent two prolonged periods of his life in the wilderness and on the run with someone hunting for his life. And this is his second season in the wilderness. And in the wilderness, when he's probably physically hungry and thirsty, he is crying out for the presence of God. Now, as a good, charismatic Christian kid... This psalm was not just David's greatest hit, it was also, for me, the psalm that legitimized and activated a certain way of approaching God. That way was that 
I was supposed to be as spiritually hungry as I could possibly be. We would sing songs like, We are hungry, we are hungry, we are hungry for more of you. Has anyone heard this song? We are thirsty, oh Jesus. Now, the interesting things about songs like that, they don't have an end. You just repeat them again and again. It's like when you sing Let It Rain, you go, Let it rain, let it rain, open the floodgates of heaven. Let it rain. And it's like the whole congregation's like, we can do this for seven minutes, but by minute 21, you're like, how do you end this song? No one actually knows. There's no plan for an ending. You're just planning to sing it until everyone falls asleep. But I grew up with Psalm 63 giving me a frame of reference for what I was supposed to be before God, which was hungry for Him. And so I felt like it was important to cultivate a sense of hunger and a sense of thirst. And what that meant for me was, I was supposed to want God's presence in my life. I was supposed to want more of Him. And doing so, activating some sort of internal appetite to know God and to understand Him and to be close to Him, was a hallmark of spiritual maturity. So I remember having personal prayer meetings and devotion times where I would try to stir myself up to a froth to make myself hungry for God. And I didn't really know the difference between actually wanting God or wanting to want God. But I knew that wanting God was a virtue. And so I would do everything in my power to make myself hungry for God. And then if things in my life weren't working, or if I had sinned, or if there was brokenness in a relationship, I would practice hungering for God by entering into worship. I would remember in pretty much every contradiction of my life, going to the piano and feeling almost helpless in my spiritual life, feeling totally unenthused about prayer, (laughs) because I didn't understand what prayer was at the time, and just thinking to myself, well, I'll just play and I'll sing, and I'll tell God how hungry I am, And hopefully that will open the floodgates of heaven for me. Now, I think that God used this. I think that Jesus saw me where I was and he met me there. And I think that sometimes doing the wrong thing with the right motivation leads us toward the right thing. Like the Holy Spirit is one who leads and guides you into all truth, right? Which means God has a plan for when you decide to move in the wrong direction. Many people have a higher doubt in their ability to get lost from God's purposes than in God's ability to keep them. But I've learned that even sometimes with my best intentions, if I did something that was what I thought God wanted, he would look at the heart even if some of my motivation or some of my practice wasn't exactly what he wanted. And we know this is true because the scripture says, man looks at the outward things, but the Lord looks at the heart. So I grew up in an environment that taught me that I was supposed to be as spiritually hungry as I could possibly be, but I couldn't tell the difference between what I actually wanted and what I wanted to want. 
And I think the reason why God looks at the heart is the heart is the executive decision-making center of our being. It's where our will and our desires and our emotions and our needs all converge. But we have to learn how to give our heart a voice. And before we do, God is able to look upon our heart and He's able to lead us by the heart because He made our heart a beautiful thing. And He wants to dwell in our heart. And He wants us to understand our own hearts. And He wants us to live by the heart. It's a lot of hearts. <laughs> the word heart, like the word love, has come to mean very little. But when I'm talking about the heart today, I'm talking about the essence of who you are. The truest sense of yourself. And the reason why this is so complicated is because we don't actually know what our own heart wants. Like, do you want to be here right now? It's a complicated question. I'm a, I may make some of you uncomfortable for one reason and then others of you uncomfortable for another. And I'm uncomfortable too. So let's just all be uncomfortable together. Starting with, do you know what you really want? Do you know what you really want is very close. It's an adjacent question to another question, which is, do you know who you really are? And that's another one that comes with a kind of script. The script I used to know was that I was born into a world where by no choice of my own, because of Adam and Eve's sin, I was broken. I was messed up. And God needed to fix me. That kind of logic only goes so far. It does make you dependent upon God and it does make you hungry for Him because if you believe you're inherently broken and bad and evil, if you believe you're disposed to do the wrong things in life and then head to hell when you die, <laughs> if that's genuinely your conviction, then you're going to seek an answer really quickly. If you know you're sick, you're going to look for the medicine, right? The problem is, is that that kind of life is that sort of logic is short-sighted because when you think of yourself in that way and then you find God as the antidote, once you're healed, once you're fixed, once you're on the right team, once you've been purified and sanctified, who are you and what do you do with yourself? So then what ends up happening is, is I began to look even further backward and I realized that the original curse was after the original blessing which was that we were made in the image and likeness of God. And that as image bearers, we, we, have a divine, uh, we have a divine spark of life within us. But even this, calling myself a son of God, calling myself a beloved child, even this is a kind of script that leads me with a certain sense of expectations. 
Think about the kinds of choices you have to make in your life. Think, so, think about the kind of things that your heart wants or doesn't want, that your heart needs or doesn't need, in the context of who you are as a person. This is like 99% of pastoral ministry. Should I take this job or should I stay where I am? Are we done having kids or should we have one more? Behind all these sorts of big life decisions is a greater question. Who am I? What does my heart need? What does my heart long for? What is my heart hungry for? See, I think the problem with telling people that they need to be hungry for God or they're supposed to be hungry for God or even that they were made to be hungry for God is that people are not in touch with their own hearts. We live in a world that is incredibly superficial. And it's not just superficial on the outside, it's superficial for us on the inside. I will say it a different way. I am superficial toward myself. Can I give you an example? I come home after a long day and I find myself, without thinking, because life isn't actually lived by your mind, it's lived by your heart. I find myself, without thinking, heading toward the pantry to look for a carbohydrate. This is just me. I know no one else in here is like this. But you find yourself just walking automatically. And I'm opening the fridge, and I'm opening the pantry, and what am I looking for? I'm looking for something delicious to eat. Why do I need to eat something delicious? Because I've had a long day. Why does having a long day lead me to want to eat something that's probably unhealthy for me? What does my heart really want? What am I really looking for? See, the problem with, with talking about spiritual hunger as a necessity for the Christian life is that it's short-sighted and it's, and it's limited because I believe every heart is hungry but our culture does not teach us how to engage with our heart or how to understand our heart. I believe it was, was it George Bernard Shaw? A great Christian thinker said, every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is hoping that God will answer the door. The problem is not that some people are spiritually hungry and others are not. The problem is that everybody is hungry. And yet we don't actually know what our heart truly wants or who we truly are. And so we give ourselves scripts, sometimes they're religious scripts, expectations we place on ourselves. But instead of learning how to give voice to our heart, we suppress our feelings, our needs, and our desires in hopes that we can stick to the script. And then we find our life is complicated because what we actually want and what we actually feel are being neglected for the sake of some other higher motivation. I think every person is, is really looking for contentment. Not the kind of contentment that comes after you've been satiated, but the kind of contentment that comes when you have really met the desire of your heart. 
to stick with this analogy for a minute, when I go into the pantry and I eat a handful of chips, I may no longer need to eat more chips, right? I finish one bag, I look at the second one, I'm like, mm, not today, fatty. I leave that in the pantry, I close the pantry door, right? That's one form of satisfaction, but that's not contentment. That's just me meeting one of my needs on the way to avoiding what my heart really needs. I'm talking about the kind of contentment that comes when you spend an exorbitant amount of money on a really good meal. Has anyone spent an exorbitant amount of money on a really good meal? Has anyone been to like a fancy restaurant that you didn't regret spending money at? And you're there and you're eating this food and it's like it's falling apart in your mouth and there's flavors that you've never tasted before and you're just like dying on the inside and you're like, this is what it's like on chef's table. I'm living the dream. This is the difference between mere satisfaction and contentment. We live in a world filled with needs and desires and we meet unconscious, unspoken needs immediately by going to the pantry, so to speak, by binge-watching television, by doing even really important spiritual things like, like praying really hard and going to church services. These are other ways we uh, initiate a kind of script where we tell ourselves what we want when we've actually neglected the true voice of our heart. But real contentment, real contentment still lies deeper than that. Real, t- real contentment lies in the place where eternal life is not just a religious theory, but it's actually a wellspring coming up from within you. And in fact, this is what Proverbs says about the heart. Proverbs says that we must guard our heart with all diligence, for from it comes the wellsprings of life. Many of us ignore or neglect our heart because we were taught by Jeremiah 17, that the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. But I'd like to encourage you that that is a misuse of that passage. The reason why it's a misuse of that passage is, in context, Jeremiah is talking about people who turn away from other people and who turn away from covenantal faithfulness to God and think they can do it on their own. And the wellspring of their heart dries up before they consciously realize it. And the wickedness comes when they're self-deceiving themselves into thinking they are self-sufficient. It's not saying that every human everywhere has a wicked heart. (laughs) But if your heart was wicked, God would not want to live in it. But I believe he made himself a dwelling place. In fact, I think this is a major theme of the New Testament. I think we've moved away from temples and shrines and external places that we hope will one day live up to God's majesty. And God says, you know what? I've already made myself a dwelling place. It's human beings made in my image and likeness. But until we learn to embrace, until we learn to really understand who we are and embrace who we are and give voice to the place God wants to live in us, we'll never be emotionally healthy and we'll never be spiritually content. Because I used to think that emotional health and spiritual maturity was ignoring and denying and suppressing my feelings and my desires. When I was getting into running, 
as an as a almost religious practice, if I felt tired, I thought this was healthy. As I was running, I would hit myself and go, because my body gets tired, right? I'm feeling really exhausted and I want to quit, and I'm hitting myself and going, I'm, it's lying to you. I'm telling my, I'm like, my body is lying to me. It's lying to me. And that's how I got myself through it, right? So if you ever drove on, on uh, the 305 and you saw Connor Schramm running along going, it's lying to you. That's what I was doing. I was trying to beat my body into submission. That's how spiritual I am, guys. Didn't work. Didn't work. Oh, here's the worst part is even when it did, I'd go home and eat from the pantry. <laughs> That's how it works, right? You do one good thing and that gives you moral license to do the thing you're supposed to be avoiding. If you think of your, if you think of your, your heart as the center of your willpower, your decision making, your motivation, it's where your needs and your desires and your feelings all interact. And if you really understand that that's where God wants to live, in you, that God doesn't want you to ignore and suppress and neglect and isolate all the forces in your heart, but rather he wants you to integrate them and he wants to participate with you there. That's the beginning of emotional health and spiritual contentment. But it's going to take some work because we don't actually know what our heart really is hungry for. Was Jesus hungry for God? See, this is an interesting passage because David in Psalm 63 says, my heart and my flesh yearn for the presence of the living God. And as a kid, I celebrated this. I was like, that's what I want, God. I want to spend three hours in prayer and then go for another three hours at another prayer meeting. I just want to be obsessed with you. And then when that interest began to fade or wane, I'd be like, oh, I'm just not spiritual enough. I just need to try harder. Maybe I need to fast more. Maybe I need to pray longer. And what ends up happening is, what initially felt like this virtue becomes a religious obligation, which leads me into bondage. And I've been in services where someone sings, we are hungry, we are hungry. And then a pastor gets up and goes, you're not hungry and we're going to sing. We are hungry until you get hungry. Some guys at the back are like, well, I'm hungry for KFC, but if you're going to make me hungry for God before I get to eat, then yes, I'll sing your stupid song. So here's the interesting thing about Psalm 63. Remember, it's a famous psalm of David, and this informs Jesus' thinking, but he seems to go against the grain because when Jesus talks about hunger and thirst, he talks about it very differently. Now, I am not criticizing David because when you're in the wilderness and on the run, he looked inside his heart and found that the greatest truth he experienced was that deeper than his longing for food and shelter and water was his desire for God to come through for him. But we're going to continue reading the psalm. It leads him to a very interesting place. And we'll talk about that. But this is what Jesus has to say about spiritual hunger. John 6, verse 25. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him... Okay, first, before we get into verse 25, let me give you the context. At the beginning of chapter 6, Jesus feeds 5,000 men. 
probably 15 to 20,000 men, women, and children, miraculously. He feeds them. They want to take him by force and make him king. Okay? It's so intense that Jesus leaves. He goes up a mountain, and he sends his disciples away. They go across the sea to Capernaum, and while they're on the sea, the sea goes crazy. They see Jesus walking on the water, and he comes and gets in their boat, and the moment he gets in their boat, they miraculously end up on the shore of Capernaum. And then the people who saw Jesus and the disciples leave in two different directions, the people who were now physically fed and went, whew, the dude that just fed me, he deserves to be king. I'm going to make him king by force. Okay? This is the context. He's talking to followers who are so crazy about Jesus. They're such Jesus freaks. They're going to take him by force and make him king. Spoiler alert, it's not a good idea to try to make Jesus do anything by force. (laughs) He escapes from their midst, but when they see him in Capernaum, they immediately want to know what's up. You see, they suspect that something much deeper is happening, and Jesus realizes the foundation of their belief toward him is wrong, and he's going to lead them into a place where they eventually want to kill him. Now, if I had time, I would read you all chapter, all from John 6 to John 8, because sprinkled throughout this whole dialogue is basically a conversation about what it means to grow spiritually, what it means to have spiritual hunger, what it means to have your natural needs met, what it means to live by the heart versus live by the head, their expectations of him as a king and Messiah versus what he was actually offering. It's this incredible dialogue, but we're just going to pick it up in verse 25 when they meet him in Capernaum. It says, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them and said, most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Remember, on the other side of the lake, he had just miraculously fed them. He says, you're not here for me. You're here because of the miracle I've offered you. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Then they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he sent. For today, for today's context, I'm just going to substitute a synonym right there, that you trust in him who he sent. Therefore he said to them, what sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? Remember, (laughs) he's on this side of the lake. He does a miracle where he feeds a multitude. They chase him to the other side of the lake. They realize he got there supernaturally and they want another sign. What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. Jesus, we are hungry. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. So it's very interesting to track. These are believers in Jesus, okay? These are followers of Jesus. These are the kind of people who have left their jobs and their homes and every sort of earthly attachment and commitment, and they're chasing this man around a lake. 
When they say they want to make him forcibly king, to make someone forcibly king means they're going to get their pitchforks and their spears and they're going to get their little merry band together and they're going to march on Rome. This is not like, oh, Jesus, we want to make you like the president of our club. No, this is like we're ready to enact violence in your name. We're ready to do whatever it takes to put you in charge of everything. These are the zealots. These are people who would come into our kind of context and we would be like, whoa, dude, like I know... I know you love God. I love God too, but like you're being a bit intense. Okay? We're not talking to like enemies here. We're talking about the kind of people that I as a child and as a teenager would have aspired to be. They want food. He wants to give them spiritual contentment. They want direction. He asks them to trust him. They want a sign He's giving them his own life. They want him to fulfill their needs. He wants them to be content with him. Are you satisfied with simply Jesus? Jesus says, I am the bread from heaven. He who feeds on me will never hunger again, and neither will he thirst. Later in John 7, he actually gets up in the middle of a party and he says that anyone who's thirsty after they've eaten their fill, after they've gone to the pantry, he says, come to me if you're thirsty and I will give you a drink that will fully satisfy you and then out of you will flow rivers of living water. Out of your heart, out of this wellspring, will flow rivers of living water. Jesus seems to think we can have spiritual contentment in this life. But interestingly enough, it doesn't come through a miracle. It doesn't come through a movement. It comes through accepting and trusting in simply Jesus. Is Jesus really enough for you? Is Jesus really enough for me? Or do I need to chase another high, another event, another vacation? Do I need to supplement my life with all sorts of things because I'm not able to realize that I already have the source of true contentment and that the place of that contentment comes out of a deep and abiding trust? When I grew up, I was told that part of the way you stir up a spiritual hunger is to fast. And if you fast, you will impress God and you will move heaven. And no one would say impress God, but they would say things like, you know, what, this kind only, you know, there's a story where Jesus casts out a demon and then he says, this kind only comes up by prayer and fasting. And so they'd say, the greater anointing comes through fasting. And so I'd sit on the front row eager with my journal open. I'd go, yes, I'm going to fast. And when I fast, I will become a spiritual Superman. <laughs> and the demons will tremble because they'll be like, Connor, you skipped breakfast this morning. We must flee. And I'll be like, yeah, I did. And you do. So then I did some fasting. In fact, I did some long fasting. You know what I found out about fasting? It makes you hungry. No, 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 let me, let me be really clear about this. I'm not trying to be cheeky. The, the chief result of you fasting 
is that you get hungry. Not hungry for God, hungry for food. The chief result of fasting is that you become aware of your own heart's voice. And the first thing that your heart says to you is, I'm hungry, feed me, someone feed me. Literally, you have dreams when you're fasting about food. I would have dreams that would get me all hot and bothered about spaghetti and bread and fruit. And what I found out was that fasting was not for God. Fasting was for me. Because I lived in a world that kept telling me what I was supposed to want and what I was supposed to desire and what I was supposed to feel and I was supposed to ignore certain feelings and embrace other ones and fasting brings you in contact with who you really are. I'm a super patient person when I've eaten well. I'm not very patient when I'm hungry. (laughs) That's right, that's right. It's like the Snickers commercial. Only when you don't have the Snickers bar, that's when you know what's really going on inside you. And Jesus seems to think that entering into a trusting relationship with him is enough. To not just satisfy the surface, but to fulfill the sense of deep contentment in these followers. And because that's not what they want, because they want a miracle, because they want a movement, because they want to be personally validated in their own desires, Jesus begins to press on them a little bit. He says, yeah, not only am I the bread from heaven, but if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part in me. And they're like, whoa, like we're zealous, Jesus. We'll kill for you, but we won't eat you. He doesn't say spiritually. He's not like... You know, if you spiritually come into a service and there's a piece of bread there and they say it's my body, that's what you eat. No, he's just like, you got to eat my body. They're like, whoa, I didn't sign up for cannibalism. Right? And then he keeps pushing them. He says, my flesh is food indeed and my blood is drink indeed. And in fact, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part in me. You might as well quit. You might as well go home. They're like, we just walked around a lake for you, Jesus. We gave everything. I'm sharpening my pitchfork as we speak, and you want me to bite your arm or something? Like, what is this about? What is he doing? He's pushing them because they think they know what they want, and they don't know what they want. They think they know who he is, and they don't know who he is. I'd like to suggest to you that if you're not satisfied with Jesus, it's possible that the Jesus you're pursuing isn't exactly the real Jesus. Because the real Jesus loves who you are, the real Jesus loves your heart, and the real Jesus wants to live inside you, not as a religious phrase, not as a spiritual idea, but he wants his presence to be known within you so that you can navigate life from the place where the wellspring is. So that you can make decisions that aren't temporary and short-sighted based on impulses and addictions, so that you can really understand and appreciate what your emotions are telling you, so that you can figure out what your desires are and how to meet them in a healthy way. He wants to live in that place with you because he loves being there with you. But you have to receive him as he is and trust him. 
If you do that, you'll never be hungry again. Because when you have needs and when you have desires, you will navigate them with his presence. There will be a wellspring of life that rises up within you that gives you the power to know that you can make good choices that lead you to true contentment. The second part of Psalm 63 says, My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness. My mouth shall praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches because you have been my help. Therefore, in the shadow of your wings, I will rejoice. I don't have a problem with someone asking God for more of the hymn. I don't have a problem with someone saying that they're spiritually hungry as long as that leads you to being full. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for they will be filled. This sort of hyper-religious culture where we go, I want more of God, I want more of God. I'm like, he's literally ready to prepare a table before you anywhere, including the presence of your enemies. If you say, I'm hungry for God, and you're never feasting on him, then you've made a mistake. Then your hunger for God is merely feeding your ego and making you feel spiritual. We need to be more hungry for God. Yes, and we need to feast on his faithfulness. Because he said, I am the bread from heaven. And if you trust me, if you let me engage with your heart, if you let me into the deepest place of who you are, you're going to find out it's messy and you don't understand yourself that well. And you make choices that seem to contradict what you think about yourself, but I'll help you with all that. And in the middle of all that, I will give you your truest heart's desire which is a wellspring of life in spite of your circumstances. This makes contentment a calling. Like true contentment is actually our calling. And this is another one of the things that the Lord showed me that we're shifting. I believe the future of the church and the future of our church is about emotional health that comes from rightly engaging with our heart that leads to true spiritual contentment as a way of life. Because otherwise we will be trapped by our own ambition and our own short-sighted attempts at personal success. I wanna make my family better, I wanna make my finances better, I want everything to go really well, I wanna get another vacation in. And as we ravenously consume in our consumer culture, we're less and less satisfied. But I believe that the kingdom of God leads us to the kind of life where we can choose contentment over ambition and where we can actually be satisfied in our deepest heart's desire because there's a wellspring of life there. Because we're not ignoring how we're feeling, we're not neglecting our own needs, but we're engaging with them properly. You know why David has a hunger and thirst for God? Because this is his second time in the wilderness and the reason why he's in the wilderness this time is because his own son wants to kill him. You know what happened to Jesus in John 6 through 8? The people who were ready to fight to the death to make him king actually in their heart of hearts wanted to kill him. And it's a weird journey and I could take you on it if we had time to read the scriptures. If you don't believe me, you can read it yourself. But here's the crazy thing. Is that sometimes what we really want isn't just Jesus. 
Sometimes I've learned in the ministry, <laughs> and I've learned this in business and in government, we look at leaders and we project onto them what we think we want. And then we expect them to be who we think they are. And then when they disappoint us or when they change directions without us, we decide we want to crucify them. If you're in any church environment, and I'm going to pick on my parents a little bit here because I've only been in this one for like ever. <laughs> but if you're in any church environment where the pastor doesn't kind of have to leave after three to four years because he's done all his tricks. If you're in any environment where people, where the pastor stays longer than the people, some people come and then some people go because they end up dissatisfied with their leadership. And the reason why they get dissatisfied with their leadership is their leader isn't the projection of who they want to be. These people are willing to follow Jesus as long as Jesus wants to lead a violent revolution against Rome. The moment Jesus starts talking about cannibalism and self-sacrifice and giving his life away, they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. We didn't sign up for this, Jesus. I will kill for you but I won't die for you. I watched the beginning of a documentary called King in the Wilderness. It's about the last 18 months of Martin Luther King Jr.'s life. The last 18 months of his life before he was assassinated were the hardest months of his life. He was rejected by his own civil rights leadership because he also wanted to oppose the war in Vietnam. He believed that racism, poverty, and war were intrinsically combined in a threefold strand that kept people in bondage, and he wanted all of them to cease in America. The moment he stopped talking about civil rights issues, even his own friends began to turn on him. And like any prophet, he died alone, deserted in the garden of his own life, with no one in his corner. Because what they thought he was, and what they wanted him to be, because what they thought they wanted to be themselves, was a fiction. And now he has a day <laughs> of the year. And now his, his mural is painted on more city streets than any other figure in America. Because in death, he has been vindicated. When Jesus died, he died without even his closest friends there to support him, with the exception of John. I'd like to ask you, are you going to be content with simply Jesus? Verse 35 says, in, in John 6 says, But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that all of he has given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. My other possible title for this sermon was Personal Jesus, the Depeche Mode song. Your own person. Anyone? No? See, what ends up happening in our culture is that everybody, everybody wants to believe in a God that looks a lot like themselves. Or the, or the person they aspire to be. The reason why worship is so significant is not because God needs our worship, but because 
We need to worship God to move away from idolatry. Without worship, what ends up happening is we begin to create a personal Jesus that's made in our image. We begin to long for and desire an aspirational Jesus who's a little bit above us and a little bit before us, but looks largely like the person we already want to be. But Jesus says in verse 35 to 40 that his mission is to draw everyone unto himself and to lift them up before the Father in the last day. Here's the journey that we're all on. The journey that we're all on is that God wants to interact with our heart and reveal his true nature to us and reveal our true nature to ourselves. Not in some religious script, but in reality. And the environment where we get this sort of experience is the environment of worship. So you see, the reason why God still worked with me when I thought I needed to sit at the piano and drum it up, we are hungry, I am tired, can I stop singing this song now, Jesus? The reason why he still used that was the environment of worship is the environment where I actually get to experience the truth in my heart. The Beatitude says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. See, I wanted to have an encounter where the vision was out here. I wanted to have a miracle or a movement that took place out here. And where I end up seeing God is in my own pure heart. See, worship is the environment where our hearts, needs, and desires become clarified so that we can experience his presence and we can see him for who he is. The pure in heart see God, not the God of their own imagination, not the God of their own projection. The pure in heart see God for who he really is. And this leads us to the weirdest <laughs> possible ending which is at the end of Psalm 63, which isn't included in the lectionary. This is what David says. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the white night watches, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. Come on, isn't that amazing? So great. Wow, David's having an encounter with God in the presence of worship. But those who seek to my life to destroy it will go down into the depths of the earth. They will be delivered over to the power of the sword. They will be a prey for foxes. He's talking about his own son, by the way. But the king will rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him will glory, for the mouths of those who speak lies will be stopped. What happens to David in worship? He gets in touch with his own heart. I'm not going to tell you that coming into a worship service and giving God praise is going to make you a better person. It's going to make you more real. You'd hope that when you leave a worship service and someone cuts you off in traffic, you'd be like, oh, bless you. Oh, bless you. I am a child of God. That's not what happens. <laughs> the opposite happens. The opposite happens, and it's by design, because God doesn't need your worship. But he needs you to be in an environment of purity of heart. 
so that when you leave the worship service, you're like, I want to kill my enemies. I wish they would go down into the dust. See, what I figured out was there was a whole bunch of needs and desires that I had that I was suppressing. I wasn't allowed to feel that way. <laughs> That's not Christian of me at all. So then I cordoned off sections of my heart, like the angry part of my heart, the resentful part of my heart. And I do that in order to become more spiritual, but all it does is deny the reality of God in me. I'm not saying that my anger and my resentment is the truth, but I have to walk through that in order to get to who I really am. <laughs> so here's what I'd like to say to you in closing. I'll only use that word once so that you know I'm actually done. I'd like to encourage you to go on a journey of purity of heart. And I'd like you to begin with a calling to worship. Because in the place of worship is where you actually discover your real heart's needs and desires. In the place of worship is where you become in touch with what your emotions are really telling you. <laughs> like you're in worship and you're super irritated at your spouse. You're like trying to lift up praise. I will give you all my worship. Oh, and I'm so irritated that she hogged the covers last night. That's God working on your heart. That isn't an accident. That's what's supposed to happen. Like, I just wish I could put all these problems aside in worship. The problems are coming up because you're in worship. Because if you're at home, you just go to the pantry and stuff your face. When we come into this place, let us come in with the idea and the desire to feast on his faithfulness and to treat the real Jesus as our source of true contentment. If we are hungry, let's be hungry, but then let's eat. If he can make a table before us in the presence of our enemies, he can make a table for us anywhere. But every time we lift up praise and every time we seek to honor and glorify the real Jesus and not the personal one that we made up in our own desires, that's where we have the presence of God and the presence of mind to navigate the condition of our own heart.